Friends, let me pray for us now as we come to hear God's word uh, read and then preached. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that today, uh, right now, as we hear it read and preached, uh, please uh, work in us by your spirit. Please soften our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray that you would accomplish all that you intend for your word in us and, and through us today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Alison. Hi. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 19, verses 16 to 25. In that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a saviour and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings and they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Well, the saying goes, travel broadens the mind. That's especially true if you've lived a pretty sheltered life. It was certainly true in my case. I grew up in northern Tasmania on a farm, and it was great, but it was sheltered. It was a small town and safe, and everyone knew each other and all those things. But then, when I was 13 years old, my parents, who'd been saving up for this their whole married lives, took us on a four-month trip to Europe. And my eyes were just opened. The world was so much bigger than I thought. It was full of monuments and history and people, all sorts of different people. But it was also so much needier than I'd thought. The first time I ever saw poverty was when I saw beggars on the streets of Rome. That trip really opened my eyes to the world around me. Well, so far in Isaiah, we've been leading a very sheltered life. 
So far in Isaiah, in chapters 1 to 12, we've only been focusing on a very narrow corner of the world, what God is going to do with Judah and Jerusalem. But now, in Isaiah 13 to 23, God wants to expand our vision, broaden our minds, by taking us on a trip of the countries surrounding Judah and telling us what he's going to do with them. And the answer is, it won't be pretty. He's going to punish them for their faithlessness, just like he's going to punish Judah. But also, just like with Judah, there's hope. If they turn to God and trust in him, he will save them. And he'll do it for the nations, even the nations that are attacking Judah, what he promised to do for Judah. Save them and bless them and make them his beloved people. And it's a reminder that Judah, as God's people tasked with holding out God's hope to the world, needs to hear. And it's a reminder that we need to hear too, as God's people who've been given the same task, but who can so easily get bogged down in our own lives and forget the world around us. So let's get into it. My first point, the fate of the nations. Isaiah 13 to 23 is a series of prophecies about a group of nations. Babylon, the Philistines, Moab, Syria, which Isaiah calls Damascus here, Cush, which nowadays would mean the areas of Sudan and Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia and Tyre. You can see them on the slide in front of you. Now, all of these nations listed in Isaiah have two things in common. Geographically, they all surround Judah like points on the compass. Philistia in the west, Edom and Moab in the east, Syria, Tyre and Babylon in the north, and Egypt and Cush in the south. Geographically, they're the nations that surround Judah. And politically, they're all in the same mess as Judah. They're all threatened by Assyria, and they're all trying to fix that mess in exactly the same way. Make alliances with each other rather than ask God to help them. Now, what will happen to these nations? What will be the fate of nations, according to Isaiah? Well, he says really clearly, all their plans will fail and they'll be wiped off the map. So you see it with Babylon, the first of the nations in this list of prophecies. Chapter 13, verse 1, a prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Babylon will be destroyed. But so will Philistia. 14 verse 31. Wail you gate, howl you city, melt away all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, that is a northern army, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. The same is true of Moab. 15 verse 1, Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kerr in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. The same is true of Syria. 17 verse 1, see Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Cush is the same. 18 verse 1, woe to the land of whirring wings along the rivers of Cush. They will all be left to the mountain birds of prey and to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer the wild animals all winter. And it'll be true of Egypt from chapter 19, that passage we had read to us. 
Verse 3 of chapter 19, the Egyptians will lose heart and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. I mean, you get the picture, don't you? All these nations are trying to save themselves, but God says they'll all be destroyed. And the reason they'll all be destroyed is because this is God's punishment on them. The armies that attack them are the weapons of his wrath, 13 verse 5. I will hand the Egyptians over to a cruel master, 19 verse 4, and so on. Now, why is God going to punish these nations like this? Well, it's because of their proud self-reliance. Like Judah, these nations are meant to ask God for help in everything, put their trust in him. But instead, they're ignoring him and only putting their trust in themselves. And so God will humble them. Babylon again, 13 verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Or Egypt and Cush at the other end of this list. Chapter 20, verse 4. So the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, to Egypt's shame. Now, it might seem odd to hear that these nations were meant to trust in God and that they'll be punished if they don't. We can see why Judah's got to trust in God. I mean, they're in a special covenant relationship with him and he's made specific promises to them that they're meant to rely on. But none of that's ever happened to these nations. God's never revealed himself explicitly to them in words. I mean, even these prophecies in 13 to 23 in Isaiah were never sent to these nations. They're about them, but they were never, never delivered to them. They were only ever delivered to Judah. So why is God punishing these nations for not trusting him when he never revealed himself to them in the first place? Well, the answer is that God did reveal himself to them, enough for them to know that they should trust and obey him. And yet they still didn't do that. He didn't reveal himself to them through words, but he did reveal himself to them through his world. And that was enough. You see, God says that he's revealed himself to everyone in this world. He's shown enough about himself in creation that we're responsible that when we reject him and go our own way. The New Testament book of Romans explains it like this. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, the Bible's not saying that we can know everything about God from creation, but we can know enough about him that there is a being outside this world, one with a divine nature, and above this world of eternal power. And that this being is someone we should worship and obey. 
and that when we don't worship and obey them, we should be judged for that. That is, when we're proud and self-reliant, thinking we're the only ones we need to answer to in the world and that we're the masters of our own fate, like Judah and like the nations surrounding them, we deserve judgment. And that's true of all people at all times, both for 8th century BC Egyptians and 21st century Adelaideans. Now, that doesn't mean that all people are as accountable as each other. Those who know more about God because he's revealed himself to them in words are more accountable to him than those who don't. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Justice is proportional to revelation. And it doesn't mean that God relishes punishing people who should know about him through creation. 15 verse 5, my heart cries out over Moab, says God. The great 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody once said this, I must not preach hell unless I preach it with tears. Well, God is a preacher with tears. He hates the fact that he has to punish the nations for their sins. And yet his justice demands it. As all humanity should know better and yet still sins. And so God punishes. And that leaves every person on earth left on their own in an awful place. Ephesians 2 verse 11 summarizes it neatly. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's the nations of Isaiah 13 to 23. And it's everyone in the world if God doesn't do something. Now, I know that's heavy. But I think that's why Isaiah writes 13 to 23 and why the rest of the Bible says what it says about everyone in the world being accountable to God. It's to remind us of the fate of nations, of everyone on this planet who's not yet reconciled to God. In these chapters, he sends us on an overseas trip to broaden our minds and see the peoples of the world without Jesus as they really are. People without hope and without God in the world. And to stir our hearts to compassion for them. I mean, we need those reminders, don't we? I mean, sometimes it's hard just to remember that the world's even there, that the world exists. We get so wrapped up in our own little worlds that we forget the seven billion other people out there. And they're all just as real and important as me. The Scandinavians have a word for the moment you realise this, sonder. Sonder is the realisation that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries and inherited craziness. An epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground, 
with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once, as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. You see, we're so often told that you're the hero of the movie of your life, that we forget that there's billions of other movies going on around us and billions of other heroes and that they're all lost without hope and without God in the world. And the fact that most other people in the world are not like us, I think only makes that harder to remember. You see, for some reason, I think we find it hard to believe that people who look different to us or speak a different language or eat funny food, however you define funny food, we find it really hard to believe that they really are genuinely people with all the same hopes and fears and ambitions and failings as us. We've got young kids and we love reading them picture books. And one of our favourite picture book authors is a guy called Oliver Jeffers. He's got this great book called Here We Are. It's a picture book and it's written to a newborn baby as an instruction manual to the world, telling them everything they need to know about it and can expect. And there's one particular page which I just love, which is covered in pictures of people from all over the world. And it says this, people come in many shapes, sizes and colours. We may all look different, act different and sound different, but don't be fooled. We are all people. I love that. Don't be fooled. We're all people. It's amazing how easily I am fooled. And I forget that. And it's amazing how much I need reminding of that. And yet, friends, all the people of the world are there and are real and are all fully responsible before God. They're people, just like you and me made in the image of God and fallen far short of it. And because of that, they deserve the judgment of God, just like you and me, all seven billion of them. We need to feel the weight of that. And yet, there is great hope. God says that all the nations surrounding Judah have sinned and so they'll be punished. But he also says that if they turn to the God of Judah and seek refuge in him, he will save them. You see, despite all the doom and gloom of these prophecies, dotted throughout all of them, there are hope notes, promises that if they turn from their sinful pride and ask God for mercy, he'll give it to them. So you see that, for example, in Babylon. He's in the middle of an oracle against Babylon, that first one we had a reading from. But then he says, 14 verse 1, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. That is, God will save Judah, but he'll also make it a refuge for foreigners like Babylon too. There's hope for them. You see it with Syria. Again, we're in the middle of an oracle against them in chapter 17, but then out of the blue, he says this, 17 verse 7, in that day, people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to their altars, the work of their hands, and they'll have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. 
There'll come a day, Isaiah says, when pagans like the Syrians will turn away from their idols and they'll turn to the Holy One of Israel. There'll be hope. Probably the most remarkable example you see of that in these chapters is the example of Egypt. In 19 verses 1 to 17, it's all about how God is going to punish the Egyptians. Well, so far, so normal. But then suddenly he says this in 9 verse 18. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance uh, to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of the sun. In that day, the Egyptians will start speaking Israel's language and worshipping Israel's God. And then in that day, Egypt will be transformed into a new Israel with all the hallmarks of Israelite culture. Altars and monuments on their border and sacrifices and grain offerings. And Egyptians will turn to the Lord and he'll bless them. Look at verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a saviour and defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And finally... He'll bring peace between the Israelites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And most astonishingly, God will call all of them my people. Look there at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that an amazing image? The nations being called God's people in the Old Testament. It's an amazing image. When will that happen? When will be that day? Well, we know enough from Isaiah now to know when that day will be. It's today. The day when Jesus has come into his world and died for the world's sins and made a way for everyone to be right with him and with each other. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 2. He says that we were all without hope and without God in the world. But then he says this in chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus has died for the world's sins. And that means that if anyone in the world wants to turn to him for mercy, seek refuge in him like the nations seek mercy, well, they can have it and have peace with God. And he goes on to say how astonishing that is in the next verses. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I mean, isn't that amazing? 
What wonderful news. Reconciled to God and reconciled to each other all around the world and all because of Jesus. I mean, we live in a world of desperate need. People from every nation, all of them there, all of them real, and all of them under the judgment of God if they don't know Jesus. How can we help? I mean, it can seem so overwhelming, can't it? I mean, those kinds of thoughts can freeze us up. But it's okay. God's in control. He's looking after his world. And he only asks us to reach the parts of the world we can reach. So what can you do? Well, you can start locally. You can start with the people of your world who are around you, your friends, your family, and your neighbours. Why not invite them to Christmas? Why not pick one person, pray for them regularly, invite them, and come along with them to a Christmas event if they say yes? That could be the start of something wonderful. That'd be a great place to start. Start locally. But we also need to think globally. There's a whole world out there that needs to know Jesus and we will never do it if we only stick to our friends and family. So how can we reach them? Well, why don't you, why don't you partner with an organisation like CMS, the Church Missionary Society? CMS is a mission organisation that seeks to reach people from every nation with the good news of Jesus. Why not partner with them? Why not start praying with them? Get one of their mission partners' prayer points and commit to start praying for them every week and get to work at it. Why not start paying for them? Why not start giving financially to the work of CMS? And most challengingly all, why don't you go with CMS? I mean actually go to another nation why not start asking yourself if you're someone who could go to the nations with the gospel? Now, you may not have a first idea about what that might look like, but you could at least start asking, asking others what they think about it. Why don't you come along to CMS Summer School this January right here in Adelaide with those sorts of questions in mind? Because there's a whole world out there and God loves it, but it's in trouble and it needs hope. And thankfully, Jesus is that hope, the hope of nations. So let's commit ourselves and our world to him in prayer now. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, you have put before us a vast vision. The nations of the world, huge and needy, rightly under your judgment. And yet, Father, we also thank you that you've shown us there is great hope for them. This hope ultimately held out to them in Jesus, who has died so that we might be reconciled to you and reconciled to each other. Father, we pray that we may not be overwhelmed by the needs of this world, but rather encouraged by what you're doing and get to work in your power. Get to work locally. Get to work globally. And all the while having your heart for this world a world that needs to know Jesus, but can, if only they hear. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.